I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Austin Letcher. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chords Cast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Everybody and welcome to the third episode of Chords Cast. My name is Ben Forrid. I uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm here today with Austin Letcher and Alyssa Mendel. Hey guys. Hey guys. Uh, we just want to take a second, quick, to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our Chords Cast. We've had an overwhelmingly great response from all of you. Your feedback, your questions. We're just really excited to know that the content we're producing has been very helpful for a lot of you. Uh, continue to give us that feedback on Facebook or email us at chords at sanfordhealth.org. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot of support and uh, there's a lot of great people out there listening. So thank you. Um, other chords updates that we've got going on this fall, we'll be at a few conferences. Um, we'll be at Nord in mid-October and then we'll also be at Global Genes uh, in Irvine, California in early October. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And we're actually going to have a booth with uh, oh, PPALS, yeah. mm-hmm. nice. the Professional Patient Advocates and Life Sciences, who hosts mm-hmm. a patient advocacy certif- certification training program here at Sanford uh, every May. And so I'll be manning that booth with, I think, the legend Barbara Wubbles. Oh, right on. Oh, and, nice. uh, if, if not, I'm sure Gene Campbell will be there too. So hopefully you guys have heard of them. They are experts in the field. But uh, yeah, get to know them if you don't know them. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But uh, Ben's actually going to be giving a talk with uh, one of our partners, Pitt Hopkins. Yeah, the uh, Pitt Hopkins Foundation Research Foundation. Um, we're we're going to have like a panel discussion about registries, launching a registry for your community, um, what it is, you know, why you should do it. Um, big aim there, I think, is just to hopefully demystify some of the the stuff around launching a registry, and so. Um, hopefully you're able to join us there and make it. I, I think that they do live stream all of those talks and stuff. So um, look into that if you can't get to Irvine. But uh, we hope to see you there and, and meet some of you lovely people in person. Uh, with that, this episode of Chords Cast, the third episode, is going to feature two interviews. Uh, the first is with Jennifer Van Houten of Noah's Hope. And the second interview is with our very own Dr. Jill Weimer, talking about some of her research and how animal models play a role in uh, biomedical research. Uh, Stay tuned and enjoy. All right, this is Ben Ford with Chords, and I am uh, sitting with Jennifer Van Houten from uh, Noah's Hope. Um, we're here talking a little bit about some of the work that they've done in rare disease advocacy and some of the activities that they've had in, um, in research. So thank you for being with me today, Jennifer. Thank you, Ben. 
Um, so why don't we start by uh, telling me a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into rare disease, and um, a little bit about Noah's hope. Okay, um, so our son Noah um, was born in 2004, and around three and a half, almost four, he had his first seizure, and we went through a diagnostic odyssey of actually kept pretty short in the rare disease space of about 16 months. Mm. Um, we, we live in Chicago and um, Noah, we weren't getting anywhere with our Chicago doctors. So um, Noah was losing his ability to walk. He started losing uh, language in his speech. Um, he started having hand tremors and tremors with his feet walking up the, um, the ladder on a slide. Oh. Um, so we were just pretty concerned and we ended up going to Duke Children's in Raleigh-Durham. Mm -hmm. um, we were admitted there for two weeks and the doctor there did a series of tests. Um, and unknowingly he tested um, in two different ways for a lysosomal storage disease called neuronoserid lipofusinosis. Um, otherwise known as Batten disease, mm -hmm. and Noah was diagnosed with a phone call because we had come back sure. to Chicago by then yeah. on St. Patrick's Day 2009 with late infantile Batten disease or CLN2 gene mutation. And I'm, I'm sure that's a devastating phone call to have to, you know, get as a parent. Uh, what types of information did you learn about Batten's disease on that phone call? Um, so our doctor, Dr. McCarty, um, actually, you know, he told us what it, what it was, what the life expectancy was. Noah was um, not quite five. He was about a month shy of his fifth birthday. And we heard the life expectancy was between 8 and 12. Hmm. Um, and back in 2009, there was not a lot going on. There was one clinical trial that had closed, Stem Cells Inc. Um, and then there was another trial that was recruiting, but it wasn't, um, it was a gene therapy trial. Okay. So we kind of globbed onto that a little bit and investigated that, um, learned about the procedure and, um, you know, and again, I don't remember all the specifics about, sure. around that. Mm -hmm. We decided not to, to do it. Okay. Um, and maybe they weren't recruiting at the moment. They have finished phase one, and I don't think phase two is open yet. Oh, and okay. I think that was the big thing. So my husband, Tracy, and my dad, Norb, um, decided to go to the World Symposium for NCL diseases. That's mm -hmm. where all the researchers gather. And so they went to Hamburg, Germany, and less than two months after Noah's di diagnosis, yeah. um, Tracy made a list of researchers that he wanted to meet and kind of help him understand what the disease was going to do to our little Noah. Mm. Yeah, that's something that working with cords, you know, we interact with a lot of patient advocacy groups um, like Noah's Hope. Um, that are started by one or two sets of parents, you know, families that get that diagnosis and they decide, I can't just go home. Uh, I have to go do something um, to, to, help, to help my child. Uh, so what types of things did you do to get started with Noah's Hope? You know, was that kind of when that, when that began or did that come later? Sort of. Um, actually, when we, you know, we're kind of spread out in our neighborhood, um, social media wasn't real big back then. We were on Facebook, but it wasn't a big thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, it, 
some of our friends told us you have to do something. Um, we knew, like, we were doing the research and figuring out what type of research was needed in um, late infantile. Um, but we had a friend say, you need to start a foundation. And so we investigated that at the same time. She held a garage sale. Um, she raised $10,000 in two wow. days. Just, <laughs> that's, that's a heck of a garage sale. <laughs> it, it was a garage sale where people kept dropping things off all weekend because sure. they were trying to you yeah. know, support this, this cause. Um, so that was, our, that was our first fundraising effort. Going back to Hamburg, sorry. That's yeah. where Tracy actually met Dr. Pierce. Oh, sure. And okay. a variety of other researchers, Dr. Cooper. I yep. don't know if you're familiar John with Cooper, him. John Cooper, yes. Yep. yep, absolutely. Yeah. That's great. So um, has Noah's Hope been active in research? Have you, uh, have, you, know, have you sponsored research studies or, or done anything? We have. Um, so our first research commitment was for, I believe, $37,000. And we made the commitment at the first BDSRA conference that July 2009. Um, however, we did not have that in the bank account. <laughs> Um, so we had to figure out a way to, to fundraise it. So, you know, and I don't, again, I don't remember the specifics on that. Um, and to, to back up a little bit, um, Noah's Hope didn't start off as an individual 501c3. We actually, um, learned about community foundations. So Mm -hmm. we partnered with the DuPage Community Foundation and we were a donor advised fund, um, through the DuPage Community Foundation, which is our our county. Sure. Awesome. In, in Illinois? In Illinois. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a great way to be able to start up quickly and, um, you know, work within your community. And sure. um, they were very, very supportive of our, of our mission of raising money for research. Awesome. So I know through uh, work here with, with, of course, Dr. Dave Pierce and our own Dr. Jill Weimer um, at, with Cords, you've funded some work to help create models of baton disease, mm-hmm. um, both a mouse model and a pig model, um, that I believe both uh, both carry the mutation that Noah has. Yes, and um, the, the mice were developed a long time ago. We discovered that the medium-sized animal model was a little thin in with the CLN2 gene. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Pierce finally you know, talked to us about creating a pig model to make sure that that, I believe they're called medium-sized animal models, um, will always be available to any researcher who ever needed or any, you know, industry member who needed to use it for a clinical trial. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's super cool. You know, they're the they're called these Yucatan mini pigs. You know, and they're Is that what they are? and they're not you know mini by any. They're they're like you know 100 kilograms or something like the size of a grown man. But you know the the um, organ size and the um, fat to body weight ratios and stuff are much more similar to human conditions. So they they make a. Yeah, a lot of people think they make a much better animal model for okay. For See, then you know disease. more about it. We we have um, we've talked around about raising money for you know batten what, bacon for batten. What's going to be one of our fundraisers? But we opted not to do that. Peter would be on our not going to. Yeah, sure. So, do you have any plans for the future with the with the foundation? You know, where are things going? Well, another um, research project we actually did with. Uh, Sanford and Dr. Pierce on maybe in 
you know, several years ago, early on in our mission, um, was to create a high through high throughput screening, yep. um, and that is now being um, analyzed. The data that was done by that. Um, I think we kind of all got caught up in our own little world. And, sure. Um, so now we're bringing that back to life. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to see what that'll do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you're talking to other advocacy organizations or other groups that are maybe just getting started and you think about things that you were doing in the early days, um, do you give them any advice on how to, you know, things you would have done differently or um, maybe different things that you think they definitely should do? You know, I think the best thing that we did was not start our own 501c3 right away and to work with our community foundation sure. so that we could focus on the research, we could focus on the fundraising, and then the community foundation took care of all the audits, the thank you notes, the managing mm -hmm. of our money. Mm -hmm. um, and that we've actually shared that with several people in our county or in our, in our town mm -hmm. who want to raise money for other um, causes that are not necessarily Batten disease. Sure. Um, but it was a great way to start up. And um, we are now at 501c3 with okay. our partners, Hope for Bridget. Okay. Um, so another family foundation in us came together and formed Noah's Hope, Hope for Bridget. Awesome. In 2000, what are we, in 18, maybe yeah. 14? Okay. So a few years ago now. Yes. Very good. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for, for sitting with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and I look forward to hearing about all the results of studies coming out with Sanford Research. I am too. I'm excited. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. My name is Ben Forrid and I'm here with Alyssa Mendel and we're talking to Dr. Jill Weimer from Sanford Research here, a little bit about her work. So thanks so much for sitting down with us today, Jill. Um, could you maybe tell us just a little bit of background on how you got into science and research in general? So I actually grew up in the rural Midwest, uh, farm country, USA. Um, I came from a town of about 1,500 people, um, tiny little high school. Um, and one of the things that our school really had going for us was that we had one of the most exceptional science teachers in the state of Missouri. Yeah, that makes um, a difference. Yeah. So um, he was very engaging. We did lots of hands-on research. Um, he did crazy things like certify us to scuba dive and then would take us to uh, the Gulf of Mexico to do our checkout dives. Oh, um, we could have that this fun. cool experience <laughs> where whatever we caught when we were scuba diving, so we'd go out and collect uh, you know, fish and different things and bring them back to our classroom in Missouri. So when I was a senior in high school, I actually caught a stingray. Um, that we brought back to our classroom and kept in, in, in the tank with our nurse shark because right every high school classroom has those things in their, in wow. their classroom. So he was a huge inspiration uh, for me. Um, and when I was in high school, he actually awarded me um, a science award um, that was sponsored by Bausch & Lohm, the contact lens solution, and they are headquartered in Rochester, New York. Um, so as a part of that award, um, the University of Rochester in upstate New York would cover me coming out for a college visit. 
Um, so I actually went out to the University of Rochester because of this award, uh, fell in love with the school and ended up um, doing my undergraduate degree there. Um, and I actually started in engineering um, and realized that I had a phenomenally strong biological sciences background, but I wasn't strong in math. Mm. Um, my parents from uh, the, the small town of Missouri said, well, if you're not doing engineering, why'd you go halfway across the country to go to school? <laughs> so I looked at the university and said, well, what's something else that's unique about the school? And at the time, they were the only university or one of only about three universities in the United States that offered an undergraduate degree in neuroscience. So I promptly switched from engineering to neuroscience, and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool because, you know, you stayed on at the University of Rochester to do your Ph.D. work, too. I did, right? yep. So I worked, um, when I graduated with my bachelor's in neuroscience, I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I knew I was interested in um, research. I didn't want to go down the path of medicine. Um, so I actually took a job as a laboratory technician for three years, um, working in an Alzheimer's research lab, um, before I really came to the conclusion that I wanted to be the person asking the questions. I wanted to direct the science. And so then I matriculated into the Ph.D. program in neuroscience at the University of Rochester. Cool. So how do, is that kind of your segue into rare disease research? You know, I know that you worked uh, as a graduate student with, with our very own Dave Pierce. Um, you know, what's the, what was the transition like into rare disease? Yep. So at the time that I was starting graduate school, the university was uh, developing a new center, um, kind of like a new department, and it was focused on um, development and aging. And they had recruited all of these phenomenal young scientists, folks that were just out of their postdocs that were starting up their labs. Um, and so what I decided to do for my PhD thesis was to partner one of the very senior people in the department, Howard Federoff, um, who had extensive experience in training graduate students, was a phenomenal neuroscientist with one of these young, new, uh, enthusiastic, energetic scientists. Um, mm -hmm. So I ended up joining David Pierce's lab, um, got interested in Batten disease. So I went from Alzheimer's down to now a pediatric uh, neurodegenerative disease. Um, and that started my path in Batten disease and rare disease research. And it's just continued from there. Cool. We had the pleasure of, of sitting down and talking to Jennifer Van Houten from Noah's Hope, um, and, and we talked a little bit about the work that um, Noah's Hope had, had uh, funded or completed in partnership with Stanford Research in general um, on uh, CLN2 Batten disease. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about kind of what that project is all about and what we hope to accomplish with that? So with Batten disease, we have a number of animal models that we use for studying many different forms of the disease. Um, some of these are naturally occurring mutations in mice or in dogs or in sheep um, that actually introduce usually a mutation that's very similar to what you see in human patients. But in the case of CLN1, CLN2 um, Batten disease, the animal models that have been developed around those diseases that we use for drug screening are complete knockouts. Um, so through conversations with Jennifer and her husband, Tracy, um, we realized that what we needed was better animal models to be able to study CLN2. Mm -hmm. um, and there are dog models for uh, CLN2 um, that are studied at the uh, University of Missouri in Columbia. Um, but when you're doing uh, high throughput drug screening, um, you want to get rapid screening and you wanted to go, go into something um, that is more physiologically like humans, Dogs are probably not the easiest model to work with, um, both for, for socially and ethically ethical reasons, um, but just also in time of the speed of the experiments. 
So we partnered with uh, Noah's Hope um, to develop a, a set of new animal models that actually introduced a disease-causing mutation into those animals. Um, so rather than having a complete loss of uh, PPT1, um, they would actually have a point mutation that has been associated with human gene with the human gene oh, sure. and disease. So the first thing that we did was actually make a mouse model um, with a CLN2 point mutation. Um, those animals actually show an accelerated disease progression over the complete knockouts. Um, so they, the animals actually develop seizures similar to what you see in the kids, um, and they usually die around four months of age, a normal lifespan for a mouse being around two years. So very accelerated disease progression. Um, we then took that same... Uh, uh, point mutation and introduce it into a Yucatan miniature swine um, so that we would have a large animal model that was more similar metabolically and size-wise to a human male. Um, so the Yucatan miniature pigs get up to about um, 180 to 200 pounds um, and have about a 16-year lifespan. Um, <laughs> it always makes me, they're, you know, they're called mini pigs. Yes, but, but they're, you know, they're They're my size, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you have to put it in relationship that a normal farm swan, a swine gets up to about six to 800 pounds. So these are little compared to those guys, but they are not little in any way, particularly for my, my lab staff that does a lot of behavior testing with these mm -hmm. pigs. Um, and for some of the pig models that we work with, um, you know, that, we take them out to a couple of years of age. So, so trying to get them to do behavioral testing with a 200 pound pig is not easy. Sure. Um, the large animal models, you know, are becoming more and more relevant. Um, have you had any experience with other diseases um, using large animal models or is it, is your lab mostly using mice? So I would say that we're probably about two thirds. Well, actually let's say one third cells, one third, mice, one-third pigs, um, if we broke it broke it out. Um, and the, the cell lines come from both mice and human patients. Um, we'll, we'll collect those because sometimes um, for us, the caveat becomes that mice don't always behave like humans, even in the normal conditions, mm -hmm. um, but even in the context of disease. And so CLN3 Batten's disease is a perfect example. Um, CLN3 Batten's disease kids um, have a little bit more of a protracted time course from um, the CLN2 patients. So they usually live into their 20s um, and succumb to the disease, you know, in the second or third decade of life. Um, the CLN3 knockout and disease uh, mutation mice uh, typically live a normal lifespan. So they don't have a premature death. Oh. They show a lot of the pathological phenotypes, but in terms of behavior and survival, it's definitely doesn't mirror what you see in human patients. Um, and so with our, our large animal work, we've kind of taken that approach where mice can tell you so much, um, but not enough, right? Because they're not a perfect disease model. So with the rare diseases that we work on, where we don't have a, perf a perfect recapitulation of uh, human disease in the mice can introducing those mutations into pigs get you somewhere closer. Mm -hmm. So we've developed models for ataxia telangiectasia, um, for neurofiber mitosis type one, um, and for CLN2 and CLN3 batten disease. Um, the CLN, the CLN2 and CLN3 studies are still ongoing. Um, so we don't have those animals fully characterized, but our neurofiber mitosis model, um, definitely shows a lot of human disease characteristics that are not found in any of the mouse models for NF1. That's great. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's so important to have these 
these relevant animal models when we're trying to do um, therapy development, uh, just because uh, things get lost in translation when you're jumping from one species to the next. And um, so it, it's awesome to hear about uh, some of the work that's done to get us a little closer to the human condition. Yeah, I think the work you're doing is fantastic and very much needed. I can only imagine there has to be some challenges that you face, though. So what is the biggest challenge, you know, working as a rare disease scientist? So I think there's a couple things that I would say, and it would, it would depend on what sort of space you're working in. My lab is genuinely a bench-to-bedside sort of lab where we have projects that are in um, basic biology, so in the context of batten disease, understanding the fundamental roles of the batten disease proteins in a normal cell. What are they doing um, for us in the normal brain all the way through therapy development? So I would say if you were looking on the basic side, um, what a lot of people um, shy away from rare diseases because they feel like there's not funding. Um, you know, the if you look at pharmaceutical companies, they want um, a lot of them. I think there's more that are moving towards rare disease research. A lot of them want um, a, a return on their investment, right? And if you have a disease that only has 15 patients in the United States and you invest billions of dollars in taking a therapy to market, you're not going to have a return on your investment. Mm -hmm. So what I say to people that are getting into rare disease research um, and are interested in sort of the basic side and they're looking for funding for their lab, you have to focus on how you tell your story. And if you can tell your story so that it does have relevance beyond um, just your specific rare disease, that the science that you're going to do is going to have broader implications, then I think that it makes getting funding easier. And so for us, you know, the, on the basic side, we're looking at fundamental cellular processes and neurons and how these Batten disease genes contribute to the development of the brain. But then on the therapeutic side, what we've done is come up with a systematic approach for how we screen drugs that can be modeled in any rare disease. And so the idea is that can we identify a strategy, a class of drugs that have wider application than just in CLN2 batten disease, that they might actually treat all forms of batten disease. And so then that becomes much more appealing also from um, you know, private funding sources, from pharmaceutical and biotech, because now you have a model that's not going to just impact 15 patients, it could impact hundreds and hundreds of patients. So it becomes much more feasible. Um, on the clinical side, probably the most um, challenging piece is finding the patients. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where actually programs like CORDS um, become absolutely vital because you are the, the people that we would go to to help us find those patients. Mm -hmm. and, and when uh, a patient knows you're doing good science or they've received this diagnosis, they immediately Google and say, right. Dr. Google, tell me where all the scientists are that <laughs> yes. are working on this rare diseases. <laughs> and if your name's not out there in the literature, if you're new to the field and you're just getting in, they're not going to come to you because they're not going to know you even mm -hmm. work on this disease. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, um, you know, having a place that as a scientist I can go to and say, help me find you know, patients with disease X, those resources need to be there in order for us to do our job. Yeah, that's got to be really helpful to have those resources. Mm -hmm. So you did touch on the challenges, but there must be some really good stuff that keeps you around doing this research. So what are some of, what are some good rewards and wins that you've had? Sure. So I think for me, one of the biggest rewards is, um, when patients receive these diagnoses, when the family receives these diagnoses, 
they feel like they're all alone. So they're connected maybe with their physician um, and their genetic counselor possibly, um, but they've never heard of this disease before. And anytime that they reach out to me, I try to make that connection and let them know that I'm here. I'm here as a resource. Um, you know, they're, they're walking into a field where half the vocabulary are words they've never heard before in their right. life. And so, you know, even if they pick up a phone and talk to a physician or talk to a scientist, half the time, like this, they're speaking different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, that I can serve as sort of a, a liaison and help them understand some of the science, help them understand, you know, what some of these drug targets are. I'm not going to make medical advice. I'm not a physician, but I can help them understand mm-hmm. what people are talking about so they can make informed decisions mm-hmm. on how they move forward with um, treatments or what sort of approaches that they want to take um, for learning more about these diseases. So, so that connection with the patients for me is extremely rewarding. Um, also, in my lab group, um, I take an approach where they own the science. Like, this is their science. I don't have, you know, my postdocs and my technicians do an experiment. And then I say, oh, I did this. Uh-huh. I took, uh, they get credit for everything that they do. You know, I, I push them out there to say, like, you, you're the one that did these experiments. You're the one that made these discoveries. And you need to own it. And I think the reward and gratification that they get from having that investment and owning their science and being a part of this and getting also to interact with these families, I think for them is also really rewarding. So for me, it's a reward to see them um, be so invested in the science. Sure. Um, Alyssa and I and and Austin, uh, through CORDS, interact with a lot of different um, rare disease advocacy groups. And they're usually families or groups of families that are just starting out, getting something put together and they're, they're hungry for research. They want to get involved in, um, in all of the things that are going on, and um, they want to make an impact. Um, do you have any advice uh, for advocacy groups or individual patients that want to participate in research about you know, how do you interact with a scientist or how do you um, jump in? Yeah, I think one thing is knowing the the scientists are probably just as eager to interact with the patients and the patient advocacy groups um, as the patients are to interact with the scientists. Um, So don't hesitate to reach out to to the scientists. I guess the one thing I would say, you know, even from my own perspective, is that we have a thousand things going on in our in our lives, um, in our labs. And so, you know, it may be a few days before somebody returns your call or returns your email, but don't feel like you're being a nuisance if you you know follow up with another call or another email um, you know we I don't I don't know a single scientist that doesn't want to connect with the rare disease patients that they work with um, so just be patient with us um, also don't hesitate to ask us to explain something to you again if it doesn't make sense you know if it if we if you need us to use a different vocabulary different word um, if you need us to draw it out on a piece of paper just ask um, because we're here to help educate we're help we're here to, you know, like make sure that the science that we're doing and that others are doing is kind of carried forward and, and that the word gets out to the patients. Um, so even if we do speak a different language, um, you know, just be persistent and we're here to help you. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jill, for sitting down with us to, to talk about your work. More importantly, thank you for everything that you do for, for the, us in the rare disease community. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening. 
The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, Chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org slash chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Chordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Chordscast. <laughs>